I just try to make as much people happy as I can. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, and welcome to episode 108 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who tries to make as many people as happy as he can. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash review. And speaking about reviews, let's start with one informative, balanced and structured five stars by Roman2864 from Poland. If you are looking for tips and insight on how to improve your cycling triathlon performance, I don't know about that. This podcast does the job for you. It has loads of information on everything from boosting your sprints to becoming a better climber or breaking into your true potential when it comes to time trials. Highly recommended. Roman, all the way from Poland, thank you very much for dropping that review. I really, really do appreciate it. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love if you would take some time out to write a review on either Stitcher or iTunes because because five stars makes me go. Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week and probe number one. The addition of whey protein to a carbohydrate electrolyte drink does not influence post-exercise rehydration. This, of course, is a study with that perfectly literal title. The addition of whey protein to a carbohydrate electrolyte drink has been shown to enhance post-exercise rehydration when a volume below that recommended for fluid balance restoration is provided. It was investigated whether this held true when volumes sufficient to restore fluid balance were consumed and if the differences may be explained by the changes in plasma albium content. 16 participants lost 1.9% of their pre-exercise body mass by cycling in heat and rehydrated with 150% of body mass lost with either 60 grams of a carbohydrate drink or 60 grams of a carbohydrate and 20 grams of whey protein isolate drink. Their urine and blood samples were collected pre-exercise, post-exercise and post-rehydration and every hour for four hours post-rehydration. There was no difference between the trials for total urine production between the two drinks, drink retention or net fluid balance. These results demonstrate that the addition of whey protein isolate to a carbohydrate drink neither enhances nor inhibits rehydration. Therefore, where post-exercise protein ingestion might benefit recovery, this can be consumed without affecting rehydration, which is pretty cool news because for me, it's always been that choice. Do you go for the carbohydrate drink after or the protein drink after? But if you can combine them and there's no negative effect on your rehydration, that's even better news because it means that you go for a protein shake with some carbs in it and you don't have to have the sport drink chaser. Probe number two is literally a probe. Well, as close as you're going to get it. It's an article from Outside Magazine. 
your body on brain doping. Hat tip to Rob for sending this one through. To create the next wave of super athletes, Red Bull has turned to a novel new treatment, trickling a small electronic current through the brain's motor cortex. So they had a five-day training camp at Red Bull HQ in Santa Monica, USA, where they took five world-class cyclists and triathletes and prodded, zapped, and repeatedly pushed their physical limits by a multinational swarm of several dozen researchers. So the big question they were hunting by doing all of this is, what role does the brain play in setting our physical limits, and can we change those limits, break through to another level, by trickling a small electric current through the brain's motor cortex? Red Bull enlisted Dylan Edwards and David Putrino, an Aussie pair of neuroscientists from the Burke Rehabilitation Center and the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. They were the ones that were tasked with putting together the five-day protocol of testing that they would do. Three of these days were done at the HQ of Red Bull and the other two at a velodrome. They used electronic and magnetic brain simulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, EMC, EEG, and an array of measurement tools to tease apart the effects of fatigue in the brain and in the muscles. The athletes themselves were pushed to breaking point again and again to measure this. And all of this has the base of Professor Tim Noakes from South Africa, his theory of the central governor theory, which says that it's the brain that prevents us from getting close to our absolute limit of our bodies and shuts us down before we get to that point. And physiologists have been arguing ever since this came out, how do we actually get to our maximal effort? And basically, no one knows how we can push beyond the limits that humans are now experiencing and get to another level. And a lot of people believe the brain is the key to this problem. So what they're doing is starting to manipulate the brain in different ways to see if they can get a response to get a breakthrough performance and truly understand how the brain can be unlocked for better performance. To do this, they're using a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, which has experienced a wild surge in popularity amongst researchers over the last few years. There are studies on pain, depression, memory and learning, and enhancing the motor rehab of Parkinson's disease and stroke. And then last year, Brazilian researchers published a study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine showing that trained cyclists produced 4% more power and had a lower heart rate and perceived effort during an incremental test after a 10-minute bout of TDCS. Suddenly, everybody is going to take notice from this. 4% is huge, especially when you are at the elite level and when you're not doing anything extra other than a couple of shocks to the brain. And so getting behind this nature of fatigue, they're trying to get behind it because they believe that it is your brain because your bodies are still moving. There's no mechanical breakdown when you actually stop exercising and you've reached your limit, that it's possible to keep pushing beyond this. So the actual protocol for the TDCS is you connect a voltage source, a 9-volt battery will do, to two electrodes placed on opposite sides of the head. The exact 
placement of the electrodes determines which regions of the brain that the current flows through. As it passes through, the current changes the excitability of the neurons in the affected region, making them slightly easier to trigger. For example, Rebecca Roosh was there, the queen of pain. She was wearing a neoprene cap embedded with eight electrodes, one to send current, one to receive it, and the rest to monitor her brain activity. Then she took a seat in a comfortable leather recliner, closed her eyes, and let the electrons flow for the next 20 minutes. And the active electrodes were positioned just above her forehead and just behind the crown of her head, and it sent current through a chunk of the primary motor cortex that sends signals to the legs and, in theory, tweaking her hair trigger response of those neurons to make sure signals would keep flowing through mounting fatigue. So what were the results of this five days of testing? I'll cut a short story shorter and tell you that there was no clear output from this, or they're not telling us. I can understand why they're not telling us. They're holding on to this information because if you have a breakthrough in this area, it really would open up performance, especially if it's privately sponsored like this. You would see Red Bull athletes going crazy. But the amount of data that they would have collected from this would really make sure that they're moving this idea forward. So definitely watch this space and it will be interesting to see how this progresses. For me, I'm not personally sure how I actually feel about this. And it is a little crazy, which I do like, but but the practical implications on the rider level really scare me because imagine everyone plugging in before a race. Is that really the type of world that I want to live in? And I don't know, it might be a bit steep coming from me because I am a self-confessed tech lover, but even so, I'm not sure that I'm ready for brain doping just yet. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts. And this week, the season or the yearly review process. And it may be a little early to start reviewing your season, depending on where you are in your season. But it's never too early to start preparing for it when it will eventually come around. The importance of a yearly review cannot be understated here. You have to do it in order to see what worked, what didn't, and what you can change for the next year. And I'm making this a practical example using an athlete that has officially wrapped up his season in mid-August. And this was his first year of riding bikes seriously or even riding bikes at all. And it was his first year of training with structure. Previously, a couple of years ago, he did enter a 500-kilometer time trial event, which are common in Norway. But... Apart from that, that was it. So this was the big experiment of Alex Krill. And Alex is just one of the great athletes that works with me as his coach. And hopefully getting behind this, you'll be able to see a little bit more of how I work. Plus, you'll also be able to do this for yourself. So the stats on Alex, he's a 27-year-old male from Norway. He is single, but he does work a demanding job, and he's never been cycle racing before 2014. Two years ago, like I said, he competed in one long-distance event. He found that he enjoyed it, but other things got in the way at that time, and so he didn't pursue it any further. But he had some time last summer to start riding a little bit, and he realized 
that he really wanted to push this further. He liked the idea of doing everything right just to see what would happen, and he was really attracted to the idea of trying to push his physical limits. So his goal was to compete in national and local races in Norway and to compete in bigger events like the Tour of Flanders Sportif and Le Tape de Tour. Both events require endurance, while Flanders requires three to five minute power for short climbs. Le Tape requires functional threshold power for longer climbs. He also is a big fan of smashing out new Strava climb records, both which require power to achieve and high speed on each climb. So the events themselves, I talked Alex down from wanting to do the hot route and national level races. They were very ambitious for me, for somebody to come along and want to do these things and not knowing exactly where he was, In hindsight, we should have tested first and then probably had a look at it, but I still believe it was the right decision because someone going into the first year of their training, no matter how much training they do, they can't be prepared for something that would be so grueling like the Hort route. So the training program, and the training year was from mid-September to mid-August. And like I said, Alex is in Norway, so considerations had to be made regarding winter. The prep phase consisted of 10 weeks of base building that was interrupted by December, which was cold and bad weather and no place for training outside. It was this time that we moved into a short maintenance block to preserve the endurance buildup from the 10 weeks prior. And this was the time when we started to also incorporate a weights-based resistance program into his training. And this was in preparation for the transfer of strength to power before the Tour of Flanders Sportif where five-minute power was critical for success. So this was done two days a week and was periodized over 12 weeks. And after a snowy winter break that was focused on maintaining endurance and building strength, I divided the year into two cycles of 12 weeks each. And the first cycle consisted of 12 weeks from January to April, where the first four weeks of the cycle were focused again on indoor training at Alex's local gym, where he was using spin bikes. And this was a bit difficult as a coach to gauge how he was going. He was able to wear a heart rate monitor, but he wasn't able to get power readings from this. And the reason that we were using spin bikes is because he was unable to use a trainer at home just due to his living situation. So to make the most of the time, we focused on tempo and sweet spot, and I also threw in some big gear efforts around this time. Alex was able to get outside in February, only just though, because the weather was still unpredictable and it was manageable only some of the time. And the focus here shifted to zone two workouts with a little bit of freedom to get out and do long hilly rides where possible, while slowly incorporating hill repeats and building the intensity, which as March rolled around, we moved into VO2 max repeats to focus on short climbing efforts, the specific ones that were needed for the Tour of Flanders Sportif, and all the time maintaining zone two and either long rides or sweet spot intervals. 
So that led up to Tour of Flanders where we had a short taper, but nothing too crazy. We're talking three or four days with travel time incorporated into that. And then after the Tour of Flanders, we moved into a four-week race period during which VO2 Max was the main tool used to maintain fitness while not putting extra time into endurance zones because the weekends were full of racing. So following these four weeks, we had a mid-season break towards the start of May where it was trying to offload some of that fatigue that built up over the first cycle. And after the break, we focused on endurance and sweet spot to rebuild the base before hitting some intensity again. And the next block after this was focused on raising Alex's FTP and consisted of a lot of steady state work at or above FTP, which moved from the flats to the hills as Letap de Tour grew closer and a short taper before the event. So after Letap de Tour, there was five weeks remaining before the final A race of the season, which was a 15-minute group hill climb and Alex was on holidays in Europe for two weeks after L'Etape de Tour and his CTL started to take a tumble. I prescribed sprint workouts to account for the fact that he had limited time to train and I wanted to see how he would react to these shorter efforts after a long season. There was no real taper for the final race. The results, what was the outcome results of racing? So... If we go through the major events that Alex participated in, the Tour of Flanders Sportif ended up being a bit of a fizzer for a whole bunch of reasons. The event itself was not as competitive, so there was no one to ride with. The start was a rolling start with a time chip that you could go through at any time. Alex got lost before the starting time and decided to do a couple of laps after taking a wrong turn. It turned into a bit of a shit fight. Then moving forward, there was the Ronde von Berg and Alex came second in this race, which was really amazing considering he was in a breakaway and nearly came through. It was a two-person breakaway, nearly came through to the line with the other rider, but their experience in bike handling meant that they got away just in the last few kilometers. The third one, and I'm going to totally butcher this, the Lagendels Riddent, he came third. Then there was the Nibber Riddent, fourth. There was Trollstein race in the Trollstein Valley up the big hill there. Third, but he was first to cross the line. Nordford Riddent, where he was first out of 217 people. And then there was Letap de Tour, where he was 66th out of 12,000 plus. So Alex performed well at Letap de Tour, despite not being around any other solid competitors and a big crash and, might I say, really, really shitty weather. The first two hours of Letap were hindered by slower riders and before the serious crash on a slippery downhill, after which the weather settled in and caused mental fatigue for the later stages of the race. In the road races, he recorded his first ever win and two podiums, and there were near misses due to inexperience and not understanding the race format, which caused lower places despite at times crossing the line first. As far as performance goes and the numbers in the first cycle, the FTP went from the top of Cat 2 at 4.4 watts per kilogram to mid-domestic pro at 5.05 watts per kilogram, which is a 12.9% 
increase. And I'm quoting those Cat2 and Domestic Pro from the Power Profile chart. If you have done a Power Profile test, you'll be familiar with this. His five-minute power went from mid-Cat2 at 5.01 watts per kilogram to top of Domestic Pro at 6.46 watts per kilogram, which is a 22.4% increase, which is quite amazing if you ask me. So the performance numbers in the second cycle the FTP went from 5.05 watts per kilogram to 5.15 watts per kilogram. So everything slowed down and that was just under a 1% increase. The reason that I think that it slowed down in the second half of the season is he wasn't able to do an optimal performance at L'Etape du Tour that we were building towards. And also we didn't test around this time after the taper. It would have been good in the week after, perhaps in hindsight now, to test and to get that number out. But he was still a bit sore from the crash and he was on holidays. So it would have been a little bit harder to get in the right place and the right physical condition to actually pull this off. So I'm a bit disappointed we don't have that numbers, but still there was a slight increase that was sustained throughout the second cycle. So if we do want to take a closer look at the numbers in relation to load, then the performance management chart or the training load chart is the place to start. If you take a look at your performance management chart since you started collecting data or the start of your season or the start of the year or whatever point you want to start from, Then you can have a look how your CTL behaved relative to the periods where you felt particularly good or bad and where you had your best days on the bike. If you plot things like your 20 or 30 days of peak recorded power for durations of interest relative to your training and your events, then you might start to see some patterns here. So it might be that you're plotting days with your best 20-minute power if you're doing a lot of hard 20-minute efforts, or it might be that in other durations that better represent your typical training or racing, like your best 40 or 60 minutes of normalized power if you do a lot of crits, or maybe your three or six minute power if you do training or events to push the limit there fairly frequently. So just like where we specifically optimized for five minute power while training base and FTP, the increase in the five minute power of 22.4% and the FTP by 13.8%, we have a look at the composition and what was happening at CTL level and at zone level to see whether that can be repeated to get the same result next season. And you can take this chart with this information and it's a good idea to get your PMC chart in front of you so that you can actually mark on it where these things are happening. And if you print it out, then you can mark with pencil the dates for any good or bad race performances to see when those happened and what led up to those days from a CTL, ATL, and TSB perspective. You're not looking so much for individual workouts, but patterns. Do you actually perform best at a high TSB or do you perform better off a gradually increasing CTL ramp even if your TSB isn't all that high on the day of your good performances. Did your best days follow several weeks of a particular type of training or did you perform better after an extended period of frequent racing? Look for these trends. Don't take them too literally as not all correlations are causal but 
If you see that you can draw out something from these recurring patterns, then you'll be able to start to formulate a bit of a plan or an outline for next season. Also, consider the rest of your life events and nutrition or weight around these times because maybe training was okay, but other factors had an impact. Things like tracking sleep patterns, for example, is really good for this, as well as your training diary and looking back at whether your RPE or motivation or whatever is increasing or decreasing around these times. Taking a look at some numbers from Alex's season, his CTL peaked at 111. His TSB went down to minus 55, which is pretty serious business. His short-term stress, the maximum that he reached was 164. His highest stress balance was 56. And I've also gone and got out his mean maximal power curve, which shows changes at every power level, especially at the 5, 10, 20, and 60 minute level. The comparison is great because it's a visual one. You can see the changes and how great the changes were in magnitude compared to the other areas of the chart. You can also look at your mean maximal powers and And the thing that sticks out for me, for looking at Alex's, is there is a big jump from mid-Feb to mid-March. And for me, I'd say that's a combination of getting outside and starting VO2 max work. This combination of being able to ride longer outside and potentially because he was testing outside may also mean that the numbers bump up a little bit. Also, looking at his best performance, and the way I define best performance is race performance so he won on the day again this was the race that he was relegated to third but he won the race just because there was a group of riders that started differently at a staggered start it was towards the end of june and his vo2 max score was 77.10 his best limb score which is an estimate of what's to kilogram for 10 minutes is 5.51 these are scores I use for benchmarking I won't go into them now but I promise you I will talk about them in a later episode his long-term stress CTL was 90 his short-term stress ATL 83 and his stress balance was positive 7 other things to look at are weekly training hours throughout the year weekly TSS typical ride intensity factor and duration So the total hours over the season, 359 hours, 37 minutes and 15 seconds. Total TSS or training load, 19,912. That's a big jump from the year before, which you're only counting a few months at the end, but it was 4,528. Total work in kilojoules for the year, 246,434. Total distance in kilometers, 9,309.85. Other interesting numbers for me are the biggest week. So the maximum week moving time, 18 hours and 54 minutes. And the same week, it was the maximum load as well, which was 1,094. His meters climbed for the entire season. 198,029 meters climbed. That's some serious climbing, although I'm sure if you lived in an area with bigger climbs, we would see a much bigger number. There is a lot of ways to review your historical data, and this is trying to just give you an idea of all these numbers that you can spit out and 
you've got to make your own conclusions about what's happening with trends here. There's a lot of custom charts that you can do, but the main thing is to always look for patterns. You've got to make note of things like how many hours you could actually train during peak season before your life and other responsibilities cut you off, or what sort of training patterns really got you psyched up and led to good results, and what training perhaps burnt you out or left you flat at the wrong times because it's this sort of information that can be useful as you lay out your plans for the next year. One chart that is really interesting to me is the change in the output to input ratio between effective power and average heart rate. And as a bit of a primer for what this is, for performance, one way of using an output-input ratio is to express how fast you're going relative to how much effort it takes to go that fast. So output can be measured with power and your power meter, and input can be measured with your heart rate monitor. So an example here would be in a 40-kilometer time trial, you have an average power of, say, 280 watts, and your heart rate then averaged 150 watts, then your output-to-input ratio is 1.87. And in either case, what you'd like to see happen in future races is that your power goes up, but there's a little change in your heart rate, aside from faster times, and that would be an indicator of increasing fitness. So you want the ratio to increase. It doesn't have to be a race, which is really good news for looking at something across an entire season. This can be done with any standard workout, but works better with steady state efforts or any workout interval that's five minutes or longer because we are talking heart rate and heart rate doesn't account for those fluctuations very well. So if we look at Alex's numbers here, he started off last October with a ratio of 1.4 effective power to average heart rate and he slowly moved up where by the time July came around, he was actually sitting at 1.87. So that's like a 0.4, 0.5 difference in his efficiency between the effective power and the average heart rate. To me, that really shows what the training was doing over that time, besides all of the specific power numbers that get spat out. At Side of Cycling, I also make note of his weight results, so what he was doing weight-wise, including the test, which is the one rep max so I can look at this before I'm programming anything next season but to kind of wrap up here for fun I was checking out all these different charts and things and so I spat out a couple of ones just for fun just so it gives you an idea of Alex's year what it's like to live in a Nordic country and be training through winter and let's see what else we can come up with here so just for fun the average temperature of his rides in 2013 at that end of the year was four but it didn't get much better throughout this entire year including just coming through summer he averaged 10.98 so 11 degrees celsius and as an example he did get to do a couple of rides in winter and we're talking two weeks straight of minus sixes, minus five, minus five, minus six, minus three, minus seven, minus eight, minus four, minus six. We're talking crazy town riding, definitely super committed to be outside when it's that cold and snowy and sludgy and really, really shitty. The average speed for his entire year, 24 kilometers an hour, up 
from 23 from the year before. And I'm not going to keep going on and on with these, but I do have a whole bunch of these charts and their flexi chart equations. If you use cycling analytics, you'll know what that is. But I have a whole bunch of really interesting ones here that you can apply to your own data if you use cycling analytics. Just go to the post page, semiprocycling.com forward slash review to check them out. So, changes and recommendations for next season to take Alex to the next level. These are my recommendations for Alex. On a macro level, Alex has shown that he's able to handle large loads of stress. And so, while this year was an experiment in getting form early and having a long build-up to the first race, I definitely think he can avoid all of that crap weather in winter and move straight into some really heavy base building when it starts to get warm. Whether this is done through going to a training camp, which is very traditional for riders in Norway to do, or just to hit it hard when he can get out on the bike and do long rides, it would be up to him. But This ramp, I think, is possible, and then it's possible for him within his lifestyle to maintain building, pushing through to May, which I think then May and June should be the focus of racing because he would have longer blocks building up to that time, and he'd be able to actually keep increasing rather than reaching the plateau like he did this year. So in his FTP, he reached that plateau when it came to June and July, and to keep building that... I think that everything just needs to be moved forward and we need to extend blocks so that we're training these areas and not moving on before they're sufficiently trained. Something to note is that there was no performance bests in races. And to me, this kind of comes down to a need to race at a higher level because he wasn't pushing his physical limits in these races. And not only this, but the results varied throughout the season because of riding skills and tactical experience. Because he wasn't pushed to his limits physically or tactically, I think there's a lot of room to grow there. So I recommend more and harder racing. And I would actually drop any idea of any sportif being done and make it all about racing. So they're my general recommendations. Hopefully this gives you a template to review your season and to make changes necessary to improve next year. If you want me to do something like this for you, I can definitely do that. If you sign up for any of my coaching packages, I will do a review as part of planning for next season. So check out my coaching packages at semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching if that sounds like something that you're interested in. Alrighty, the tech hacks and products section. And this is an article I found on dailyburn.com, which is a red hot source for any technology that is moving through fitness, not just cycling. So this is a little broader, but it talks about the researchers from General Electric working hard to develop a tool that can measure the number of calories in your meal with the mere push of a button. They're talking about calling this maybe the calorie count plate, where they've been able to develop a simple equation that allows them to estimate the total calorie count of a plate of food based on its weight, total fat content, and water content. 
absolutely amazing technology if you ask me, using a technology called microwave spectrometry, which is often used for quality control in food processing plants. The researchers tested their technique by measuring the fat and H2 contents in a liquid solution. And after 40 or 50 tests, the researchers have confirmed that their equation enabled them to measure calories within 5 to 10% accuracy, and the entire procedure just took seconds. Now, they're working on developing a device that you can stick a plate of food in and press a button and get your calories. Bam! General Electric expects a device like this could potentially retail between the $200 and $400 mark. What do you think of this technology? Do you think it's worth it? And would you buy it? By the way, there is something that already does this for drinks. It's called Vessel. It's a really weird spelling, so I will just link to it in the show notes. It's going to be available in 2015. It's a cup designed to automatically assess what's been poured into it and track your drinking in real time. If you put any type of liquid into the cup, whether it's soda or juice or coffee, the vessel's sensors inside the cup break down the fluid to a molecular level in order to identify what's in it. It can differentiate brands, things like Pepsi versus Coke, plus it gives you caloric makeup, including total grams of sugar, fat, protein, sodium, and caffeine. It sounds like something from the future right there in a cup. If you want the practical applications of this, it does track things like yogurt drinks and smoothies. It does calories in real time and they also record calories over time on an app with a Bluetooth connection. It's got a wireless recharge coaster that it sits on. It estimates your hydration needs based on activities and does connect to activity monitors. It keeps track of caffeine consumed and the amount and timing of liquid protein. It also tracks sugar intake and alcohol. I got to say, I was so pumped up from reading this. I bought one straight away. I pre-ordered one straight away. So I'll be getting my hands on it in early 2015. I know that's a long time away. I can't wait for it though. I've got a link in the show notes and for a full disclaimer, there is a referral code that I was given at the end of my purchase, which means if anyone clicks through the link and buys one themselves, I get 10 bucks that goes towards my purchase of the cup. So just so you know, if you go through that process and end up buying one, let me know so we can share information together. But outside of that, I just wanted to be upfront about my little kickback from the link. Now, let's get to that quote from the top of the show. It's... Motherfucking Jens Vogel. And he's retiring this week, which personally, I'm not a super fan. I don't know whether I'm going to have some haters for that, but he is right. He does make people... How can you argue with that? I'm sure we will still be hearing from him after his retirement. I've got a feeling that he likes the attention and he's not going to disappear too easily. But definitely good luck in your next chapter, Jens. If nothing more, it has been entertaining. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash review to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site and visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for information on my coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into.
can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. Shut up, legs. I can't do it. Leave me alone. Shut up, buddy. I do what I tell you. Like, no, no, no. You know? I can't do it. Leave me alone. I want you to do what I tell you to do. No, no, no. Wow. Shut up, buddy. I do what I tell you. Oh, this is gonna hurt. Oh, this is gonna hurt. They get paid to hurt other people. I get paid to make other people suffer. Like, um, wow. What is that? That's good. Oh my god. I'm motherfucking Jens Vogt. <laughs>